Dear ones, I'd like to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you may be seated. There are usually two questions that I'm often asked during this time of the year. How was your summer and what did you do during the summer? And so I want you to know, very briefly, I had a great summer. Let me just share some of the highlights. Got to spend two weeks teaching at the Caribbean Bible College. While there, I got to tag along with Mike and Cindy Helvey, missionary in residence, as well as the World Impact Team. And I got to spend time with a chancellor of this university, Dr. Henry Smith and his wife, Teresa. I did the wedding of Seth and Michelle Graber. In fact, I calculated that since I've been here, I have done the weddings for 31 couples. Got the privilege to speak at different venues, such as Fairmount Youth Camp, for a youth camp for United Methodist Churches, a retreat for IWU chaplains, spoke at Simpson Camp near Detroit, and at a bunch of different churches around here. As district superintendent or assistant district superintendent of the Indiana North District of the Wesleyan Church, I got to plan the ordination service where we ordained nine individuals into full-time ministry and commissioned one to be a missionary. With some others from IWU, a Pray for Marion event was planned and held on the steps of the courthouse. And at this gathering were around 300 individuals that came together to pray for different sections, different individuals, leaders of this community. I want you to know that I ran a race with my son, Andre, and I want you to know that I've been upping my miles. I'm kind of proud of this. I have, since summer, I have lost 20 pounds. I celebrated, I celebrated my grain gal's ninth and seventh birthdays. I visited old stomping grounds with my brother Tommy. That's a picture of me when I was 10 years old. Handsome little kid, right? Well, this summer I got to spend time with my brother Tommy and we took another picture and that's 50 years later. (laughs) So, handsome now, right? I did get to relax some. And I want you to know, I got to spend time with my pet chinchilla called Snowball. And last week, I was involved in new student orientation, and what a blast that was. Each year for the past seven years, IWU has selected what we have termed the verse or the verses of the year. We have selected 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 to be those verses this year. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. As I was reading these words, it dawned on me that in these few passages in the New Testament where if you look at it, so many of the great fundamental Christian ideas are presented to us. Now within these two verses, four basic doctrines are presented. The fatherhood of God, the new birth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the eternal inheritance of those who believe and accept Jesus Christ's gift of salvation. I would like for you to journey with me for the next few moments through these verses, these verses of the year. And as I was meditating on these verses and thinking about them, three thoughts came to my mind. Thought number one, a summer picture. Thought number two, stupendous praise. And thought number three, the Savior's present or gift to us. The summer picture that came to my mind took place on Thursday, July 10, 2014. On this sunny summer day, my brother and I, we decided to take a trip to go visit what is called St. Mary's Cemetery in the old section of Newark, New Jersey. 
Our mission was to go there to locate the headstone of the man who was instrumental in my existence. Upon locating his stone, both Tommy and I, we stood before it in silence, and we were reading the words that were engraved on a headstone. Reverend Bonaventure Gute Min, born in Hupei, 1913. Ordained Rome, Nanking refugee, died Newark, 1962. The emotions of locating the resting place of the man who was instrumental in my existence, yet whom I never knew brought a myriad of emotions to my heart. I felt that I had to get off by myself. And as I walked the grassy landscape lined with hundreds of erect gray-stoned markings appearing to be gray-uniformed soldiers standing at attention, I began asking myself questions that I had asked myself hundreds of times in the past. What would have happened if this man would have left the priesthood and married my mother as he told her that he planned to do? How would my life be different if he had taken responsibility for the three children that he had with my mother? Would I have so many of the insecurities that I still have in my life? What would have happened if he had not died? My solitary walk became a time of deep pondering and question and reflecting. Now, I need to let you know right from the beginning, my purpose is not here for us to bash the Roman Catholic Church. I'm just sharing my testimony. Because even in the Wesleyan Church, there have been individuals that have not lived up to the calling that was placed upon their life. I sense that Thomas Gray did the exact same thing that I did as he visited the cemetery at Stoke Poge, a small village near Windsor Castle in England. For it was there that he penned his famous poem, Elegy, written in a country churchyard. It's funny to me how words from the past have a way of entering into one's mind in the present. One stanza of Gray's poem that many in high school had to read and discuss when I attended, it goes something like this. The boast of heraldry, the pump of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth ever gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. What's the message of the poem? The message is this, is that the glory of humankind, it does not last at all. In fact, as I look back at my own, the man who fathered me, Father Bonaventure had so much that was going for him. He was close to receiving a doctor's degree in theology. He was ordained by the Pope himself, by himself in Rome, an indication that great things were being expected, predicted for him. But instead, heartache filled his later life, ending with him dying of cancer at the young age of 48. Due to feeling great shame, he passed from his life with a sense of hopelessness and wondering what eternity held for him, wondering what the afterlife would hold for one who had brought such grief and such pain to individuals. And as I walked that cemetery, the feelings of sadness and shame, remembering that for years I was called at school the illegitimate kid, and those feelings seemed to enshroud and seemingly seemed to strangle me. And as I continued to walk, I came face to face into a monument depicting Jesus Christ on the cross. And I want you to know that that picture caused me to bristle on the inside. And verbalizing what was on my mind, I shouted out, The Christ I serve is not dead on a cross, but he is alive, he's risen. The cross is empty for me. The emotions that I had been feeling then turned to instant praise, stupendous praise. You see, yes, the glory of humankind does not last, but I want you to know that the glory of God, it lasts for all eternity. And yes, 
My early life was rough, full of sorrow and, yeah, full of dysfunction. But upon accepting Jesus Christ as my own personal Savior, I want you to know I feel my life has been wonderful in Jesus Christ. And remembering this, it caused me to want to praise him, to render unto him stupendous praise. Peter wrote, praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was blessing God, rejoicing in what God had done for him. Stupendous praise touches one's emotion and it touches one's spirit, causing some to also physically be involved in the adoration of God. Some individuals have termed this radical praise. Some call it outrageous praise. I like calling it stupendous praise. You see, the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, it comes to my mind. That entry is called the triumphal entry. During this entry, our Lord Jesus Christ, he was recognized and he was given the reception of a king, even though it was only for a short time. Some of the people began shouting out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. In fact, some of the people took off their coats and laid them on the ground before Jesus Christ. And I want you to know, I doubt that it was their spare jacket that they usually left hanging in their closet at home. It was most likely their only overgarment. But what they did reflects to me stupendous praise, outrageous, radical praise. They were proclaiming Jesus Christ as king. And so what's the admonition for each one of us in this chapel auditorium? Dear ones, we need to be people that can rejoice, and we need to be people that can be glad, and we need to be people that are praising Almighty God. The word used for rejoice, it connotes a strong emotion. It's not quiet joy. It's outrageous, it's radical, it's stupendous joy. It's vocal, in fact, it's have-to-dance kind of joy. I have a friend by the name of Bob Van Sice. Bob just recently retired, but when he used to get up there and preach, I want you to know that when he got excited, he would begin to do a little jig up on the platform. I want you to know the first time I thought that, I thought that guy was a heathen. <laughs> but I want you to know, I began to realize that's a form of worshiping the Lord. In fact, when I worked in Africa, working in some of the churches on a regular basis, the Yumfundisi of the church, he would come along and tell the people that he wanted them to yell out their praises so loud that the whole world could hear the Christians giving praise to the great Unkulunkulu. I knew that was impossible to do. But at the same time, I want you to know there's something, and I was one of those guys, the stoic Chinese guy that would get involved in yelling out the words, See him tanda unkulunkulu. We love the great one. Sometimes I wish that the people in this auditorium would enter into stupendous praise. Some of the Pharisees weren't all that happy about such an outrageous display of emotions. They came and they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus Christ replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Stones crying out. Think about it. That's outrageous. That's radical. That's stupendous praise. In fact, that's kind of scary thinking about stones yelling out. Stones, stupendous praise. It may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But if you're not accustomed to outrageously praising God, and most of us aren't, you'll feel uncomfortable at first. Stupendous praise will most likely make those around you feel a little bit uncomfortable. 
Now you need to know, I'm not advocating that you intentionally offend your neighbor for the sake of offending them. I've been in services where the people around me get a little bit, I think, too outrageous. They lift up their hand, but they're knocking my head when they're doing that. I'm not suggesting, though, you need to understand, but I am suggesting that you not allow others to dictate how you outrageously praise God. The word praise that is used by Peter comes from the Greek word from which we get our word eulogize. The Greek form of the, uh, to eulogize is made up of the word you, meaning well, and logeo, meaning to speak. And thus, to eulogize someone, to bless someone, to praise someone, is to speak well of that individual. For the Jews, the commonest of all beginnings to prayer were their words, praise you, O Lord. Listen again to what Peter writes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His words are not directed to a distant, unknown God. Instead, as William Barclay explains, Peter is praying to the God who is like Jesus, to whom through Jesus Christ one may approach with childlike confidence. A thought for each one of you for this semester, that when you feel lonely, when you feel insecure, when you feel confused, when you feel weak, when you feel ready to give up, when you feel flustered, when you feel as if you can't take another step. Remember, our God desires us to approach him, to have the kind of relationship with him whereby we feel the freedom to ask him for divine assistance. I appreciate the words of Edmund Clowney. He comes along and he writes, we can praise God because of the hope that can be ours. Peter writes of a sure hope, a hope that holds the future and the present because it is anchored in the past. Peter placed his hope in God's salvation, God's deliverance from sin and death. His hope was sure because he knew by faith that God had already accomplished his salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was a life-changing reality for Peter. That when Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, it was the end of all Peter's hopes. He knew only bitter sorrow for his own denials. The next day's dawn could not bring hope with the crowing of the rooster. He only heard the echo of his curses. But Jesus Christ, you need to hear this and you need to hear it often. Jesus Christ did not remain dead. Peter saw the empty tomb. He heard the message from the angels. And for this reason, Peter was able to testify about being able to praise the holy living hope, the holy one of God. The resurrection is the crowning victory of Jesus Christ. And it really is the hope for all humankind. Peter's living hope was Jesus Christ risen. And his words found in 1 Peter, it can be our reminder that Jesus Christ, he can be our hope as well. You see, this is the Savior's present to us, his gift to each one of us. But the problem is, is that so many of us, we've heard this message before. And it's easy for us then to treat it as old and even boring news. But listen to the message again. Christ's resurrection spells hope for us, not just because he lives, but because by God's mercy we can also live. 
You see, this is what Peter wants his readers to comprehend. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter defines the hope of Christians as an inheritance. The word for inheritance has a different emphasis in the New Testament from what it has in our modern-day usage. We use the word for the property that a son or other legal heir receives upon a death of his or her parents. But in the New Testament, it is used to express the legal claim that the heir already has on the property, even while the father is still alive. Peter is underlying the fact that the content of our hope in Jesus Christ is already destined for us. Or in other words, I do not have to wait to experience the goodness of God. I can experience it today. Or dear ones, can I make it more practical for you that you don't have to wait for the future on the day you die to experience the wonderful gifts and inheritance of God. You can experience it in the now. Within the Old Testament, we read about God giving the promised land to Israel as an inheritance with a lasting right of ownership. While they wandered in the wilderness, they were sustained by the promise of their inheritance. And in a similar way, the people of God in the New Testament and those of us who claim to know Jesus Christ, can I share, we are aliens and we are pilgrims in this world. We're making our way through a world that is hostile to the thinking and the things of God. And yet I want you to know that we are not wandering beggars, cast off to be by ourselves, to fend for ourselves. But we hold a sure title to the inheritance that God presents to us. Warren Wiersbe writes that as the children of the king, we get to share his inheritance in glory. We share glory with Christ. Peter tells us that this inheritance cannot perish, that nothing can ruin it, that our inheritance from God cannot be ravaged by any invading army. The readers of Peter's epistle would have understood the picture that he was alluding to. Many in their time, many a time, their land had been ravaged by armies of aliens, and it had been fought over, and some tried to tear it apart. But Peter wants us to understand this. We can possess a peace and a joy that no invading army can ever ravage or destroy. I need to let you know that for the past few weeks, I have been focusing my prayers, asking God to help the Christians in Iraq and Syria who are being tested through horrendous persecution. The news showed a photograph of a little girl about 10 years old wearing a dress. It appeared that she was dressed in her best. Everything about her looks normal, And this may sound gross, but it's the reality of the world we live in. She was missing her head. The photo made me sick, and it made me angry. The reporter shared that this was a Christian gal who was beheaded by by the ISIS. Reverend Julian Dobbs, who heads the Church and Islam Project of the North American Convocation of Anglicans, he shared, too often in places where there has been a relative peace, Christians, our brothers and sisters, are now living with a regular threat and challenge of persecution and suffering for their faith. The reports that are coming out are horrendous. Christian homes have been marked with a sign of the Nazarene for later slaughter. Believers are being beheaded and even crucified. 
Christian women are being sold as sex slaves. It is believed that over 400,000 Christians have been displaced from their homes. And yet in the midst of all this, it was reported that one Christian man, upon the threat of being killed or to renounce his faith in Christ, he cried out the song, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. That if you kill me, I know that I will enter into God's eternal inheritance for me. The big fisherman tells us that this inheritance it will never spoil. It will never fade. It is not something that's in the past, but it's something that you and I can claim today. And so you're thinking to yourself, so what? What does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with the people at Indiana Wesleyan University? I've asked two of our student leaders, Megan Swan, who is one of our student body chaplains, as well as Tim Scarlock, who is our SGA president, if they will come up here and briefly share what does 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 have to say to us. As Dr. Lewis said, we were called as leaders of this campus to share how we see this verse of the year applying to us as a Christian academic community. I first would like to share with you guys the first part of the verse. Praise be to God and in his great mercies. On this part, I think we can see we've been blessed a lot in this campus. In your lives, God has been doing a lot for you. And so give him the praise. I think it's easy for us to go on our own strength and only rely on his mercies. As Dr. Lowe said, either waiting for afterlife or when we're at our worst. I'm calling us as a community to bring God our good to make it even better. We can make big goals as a campus. We can desire to change this world, not because we think we are so great, but because we know who we praise. We know who really deserves the honor. I'd also like to share with you guys another part of the verse. New birth into a living hope. Have expectation for the Lord this year. When you give up that, what you have, your academics, your spiritual life to the Lord this year, expect him to do great things with it. Have the hope to be able to trust in that. We don't have much of a culture of inheritance, do we? I mean, besides the long lost relative who passes away and leaves you millions of dollars, we just don't hear about it much. Even that sort of thing that happens in movies, inheritance is treated like a lottery. You win, and out of nowhere, your life is changed and nothing is required of you. Growing up in the evangelical church, I thought of inheritance differently from that, though. I thought of it in its particulars, my denomination, my interpretation of certain passages, and my political affiliation. All of these things were my inheritance. As I began to study the word more and interact with more of the global church, I began to understand whom I inherited these things from my parents, my denomination, my individual church, and sometimes just my own biases. I thought certain things were true, so I called them Christian values. It was, and still is, an exclusive and narrow way to conceptualize faith. We read in 1 Peter 3 and 4, and it calls our inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And these are two aspects I want to explore. First, the inheritance is, that's discussed is not cultural. It transcends the human constructs of political party, denomination, and doctrinal divide. It is the knowledge that we will be born again to a living hope. 
We are living in the resurrection right now, and that is a huge deal. And it is lived out in the particulars. It changes our politics, our doctrine, and our participation in the church, but not according to our own divides. I've talked to both the Republicans and Democrats who have believed that it's impossible to be a Christian and be in the opposite political party. And this is simply a wrong reading of our inheritance. It's so much bigger than that. The second part of the verse that I want to address is its universality. Peter is writing to a group of churches and really for the church as a whole. Yes, I receive the inheritance of hope through Christ's resurrection, but more accurately, the church receives the inheritance. I am not the body of Christ. We are. This inheritance is for the literalist and the liberal, for the minister and the congregant, for the Catholic and the Wesleyan, for the Democrat and Republican, and for all of the children of God. We have all been born into an inheritance that does not discriminate. So when, so when we go into this academic year, remember a few things. We are the recipients of an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading hope. This hope is the thing that unites all Christ followers. And the inheritance isn't some lottery. You don't win it or lose it based on luck. God is not your rich uncle. He is your loving father, and he pours out all his inheritance to his children. This year, revel in God's unifying power of Christ's resurrection and full atonement that was given with it. Let it shape you and let it shape this community. And so, dear ones, will you do me a favor? If you truly understand the wonderful gift that the Lord has given to each one of us, will you stupendously praise him by shouting out the word, Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.